Hey, Shaka. Thanks for joining me on uh, uh, Christmas Eve. Um, and uh, I think, you know, it'd be great. Maybe we can start out if you can just sort of introduce yourself a little bit uh, and then we can dive into some of the uh, stories. Yeah, so my my name is uh, Shaka Sengor and uh, I grew up in the city of Detroit. Um, I, I grew up actually in the streets of Detroit from a very early age, you know, ran away from home, got caught up into, into the street culture and ended up getting in a lot of trouble. At the age of 19, I was sent to prison for 19 years. Uh, seven of that I spent in solitary confinement. And it was in that space that I began to really re-examine my life. Um, and largely, literature was that turning point for me, being able to read uh, some of the most amazing books uh, throughout the world, history, culture, politics, philosophy. Um, then I began to take writing series. I started writing a journal, um, and that eventually led to me writing novels, which is you know one of my favorite forms of writing is fiction. And got out of prison in 2010, started doing work in the community. Um, but I continued writing and eventually penned my memoir, Writing My Wrongs, um, and published that officially uh, earlier this year. And um, let's like, if, so, so the, I want to just ask you about uh, the book a little bit more. Did you, did you wrote that after, you wrote books while you were in prison, and I think you told me about how um, uh, you got, uh, well, there was some story about you, them not being happy about the fact that you were writing books in prison, right? Yeah, so I, I originally uh, published my first book, uh, which was a novel called Crack, and it's a detective series I started. Uh, while I was in prison, and I published that first book in 2008, and then I got sued by the Department of Corrections for the cost of my incarceration, which they estimated to be close to a million dollars. So in, in, in addition to serving time, they also wanted me to pay for the time I was serving. Um, and so they sued me when I was publishing the book. They thought I had got like a big publishing deal, but what they didn't realize is that I had actually self-published the book. Because I knew, you know, getting out of prison that there wasn't going to be a likelihood of me finding employment due to me having a felony and, you know, society being a little resistant to second chances. Yep. So um, let's maybe we'll dive into this book stuff in a minute. But let's I mean, the the two of us met. I was trying to remember what year you had just got out of prison, right? Like yeah. it was uh, like a year after you had gotten out. Yeah, I think I had been home like maybe a year and a half when we mm -hmm. uh, first met. So I think we met like early 2012. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think I had been home quite a year yet. Yeah, that makes when sense. We met, yeah, we met. I had won a Black Male Engagement Leadership Award for some work I was doing in Detroit, mm -hmm. uh, which was supported by the Knight Foundation. And the Knight yeah. Foundation ended up inviting me to an event that you were speaking at. Yeah. Um, just talking about your connection to Detroit and some of the ways that the lab can intersect with Detroit. Yeah. Yeah, that was my, um, um, uh, like, I, I had spent a lot of time in Detroit, but I remember it was the uh, Knight Foundation, uh, which I'm on the board of, and we were trying to do this uh, Innovators Guild in Detroit, and we rounded up a bunch of people uh, and uh, uh, tried to come up with uh, problems that we could solve in Detroit with a bunch of MIT kids. And uh, I remember what was uh, really interesting was I, 
I remember, you know, we were, it was kind of all the local community leaders and uh, you came up and uh, after we made a presentation about the media lab, I don't, do you remember exactly what you said? You sort of said. Yeah. So what happened in that particular room, there were some native Detroiters, uh, some people who have been working in the community for a long time, but there was also some new, some transplanted Detroiters, people who were just moving to the city and they were, you know, in my opinion, they were a little overselling the idea that Detroit was this blank slate. And, you know, knowing the work that had, you know, many people have been putting in for years, I found it, you know, misleading to uh, you and your staff and your crew and a misrepresentation of the city as a whole and, and the complexities of the work that needed to be done. Because, I, you know, the way that they were presented was that you could just swoop in with a, a crew of MIT Media Lab students and fix Detroit. You know, and the city was much more complex than that. And I wanted to be honest about that and give you guys a, a fair opportunity to really explore the city. And so I offered an opportunity to take you on a Detroit tour, which I was, you, you took me up on. Yeah, I, I remember being a little bit more scared than that. I remember you got up and you said, if you want to see the real Detroit, uh, we'll show you. And then I think I was with uh, uh, Jess Souza and uh, Colin Rainey and uh, just Goldfin, a few others. And they came back and you showed them around East Detroit. And I remember they, I, I wasn't on that trip, but they came back and they said, oh, this is really different than, uh, and a lot harder. Um, and I knew from the Knight Foundation, we are in a lot of communities, but Detroit's kind of the hardest place to uh, work because in most communities, you just go in and you say, hey, we're here to help. And everybody's like, oh, okay, cool. But Detroit, they're just like, yeah, we're, we're, we're tired of people coming in and trying to help and then just kind of you know, doing their photo op or just taking advantage of us. And so Detroit's actually a really, it was a really hard place to get uh, in at an authentic level. And I think uh, what was uh, really interesting working with you on that was uh, when we brought everybody in, we, you know, and uh, Jeff Sturgis and other folks in Detroit helped us set up a base and connect with, uh, you know, the people doing urban farming, uh, kids uh, like, uh, 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 fame who were, you know, some real artists and designers. And, uh, and we, we learned a ton. And I think I remember a couple of the Media Lab students after we did that, uh, uh, week in Detroit, they, they told me this was, they learned more, uh, from you guys in Detroit than the, anything they'd done, uh, at MIT, which was pretty impressive. And, uh, uh, yeah. it was really cool. So, and you, you kind of came out as a natural leader for us. And I think we sort of designed the, Directors Fellows program um, around you and uh, um, and Jeff and it was a it's been a it's been pretty cool since then. Yeah, I mean the directors the directors fellow program is, is by far one of the things that I'm most proud of being a part of. Uh, it's just such an amazing group of men and women who are doing incredible work throughout the world. Uh, I remember when we first discussed you know you, you starting this fellowship. You know we were just kind of like, what will it be? What will it look like? And now, you know, a few years later, being able to look back on all the incredible work that's been done throughout the world and just, uh, you know, the way that we've been able to intersect with the Media Lab and what we've learned from the students and what they've learned from us mm -hmm. um, is something that I'll always be proud of. I mean, we have so many incredible people, you know, Chess Grandmaster Maurice Ashley, J.J. Uh, Abrams, which is just like mind blowing um, and just really, really incredible, thoughtful um People who are just interested in, in innovating and changing the world. Actually, one, one of my uh, favorite moments, though, I mean, I, I, having you talk to all these directors, fellows, and work with them was really cool. But one of my favorite moments was when when you and uh, 
Martha Minow, uh, here on the right. Uh, she's the dean of the Harvard Law School, and uh, you did this uh, talk on stage. And, uh, and she was really sort of interested in sort of understanding uh, forgiveness. And you were talking about your time in prison and how you uh, 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 went through your journey through literature, but also uh, you know, uh, th that, that whole transformation and, and connecting, uh, you know, with, uh, uh, was it the grandmother of the, uh, uh, of the, of the, uh, of the, of, of David? Yeah, the godmother. Yeah, the godmother. And, uh, and that whole conversation about how, you know, prison right now doesn't really, uh, try to heal you. It really, uh, kind of sets you in this cycle. And, and, and I think, it was really interesting just seeing how, how well you and Martha connected. And, and, and to me, that, that's also kind of this brilliant thing that both the director's fellows and, and you, Shaka, you know, in your, in the way that you are able to communicate out, um, are able to do that. I mean, I, I, that, that's kind of what you're doing now, sort of. You did this at University of Michigan, but can you talk a little bit about what you've been working on? Yes, I mean, in, in the years we've met, I've worked on a lot of different projects. I started the Atonement Project at the Media Lab, and I was able to, to actually take that project and begin teaching a class at the University of Michigan. And it was built around the idea that people are redeemable, uh, but there are steps that you have to take in order for true redemption to manifest in your life. And the first is acknowledging that you've hurt someone. Uh, the second step is to apologize uh, to those you've hurt. And then the third step is to really be intentional in your actions of atoning and trying to do the best you can to make things right. I mean, in my past, you know, I can't undo what happened 25 years ago. But what I can do moving forward is ensure that young men and women don't have to go through some of the things that I went through and can take a different path. And, you know, when I had that conversation with, with uh, Martha Minow, I was like, that was just mind blowing. She's one of the most brilliant, you know, law minds in the world. And to really recognize that she sees um, what's broken in our system uh, really inspired me to take my work to another level in, in regards to trying to fix some of those broken things and to help people see that if we invest on the front end um, and do our best to make sure that people are getting what they need, that we can actually prevent men and women from going to prison. But if we're going to incarcerate as many people as we have incarcerated in the world, that we have a responsibility to ensure that they can come out on the other side of that, prepared to reenter society as healthy human beings. And so... Uh, that's the bulk of my work is with beyondprisons.org. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a storyteller, and so the idea is to really help create a different narrative uh, to rethink incarceration and, and to recognize the humanity of those who are incarcerated. And in a way, it's really good timing, too, right? I mean, I think with you, you, you've been working with people like Van Jones and Cut50 and others, and it seems like, well, we'll see what happens with this new administration, but that the both the right and the left uh, are seem to be supportive of tr trying to reduce the number of prisons. Uh, is that? Do you feel like that's still going? I'm a little. I'm a little nervous. Uh, honestly, uh, we've done a tremendous amount of work. Um, we've done a tremendous amount of work over the last couple of years, and in, in, including convening the largest summit on criminal justice reform, including both parties. Uh, the current president, uh, President. Obama uh, and his administration has been very supportive of our work. Um, you know, governors on both sides, from the left and the right, have been very supportive. You know, senators, legislators, and so you know, there's definitely this 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 fear that 
a lot of our work can be undone with the new administration. Uh, but but then the flip side of it, what keeps me optimistic is that I know, you know, tough times brings out the best in people. And mm-hmm. it tends to challenge our creativity, our innovation in ways that, you know, relaxed times don't tend to do. And so, you know, we're not we're not backing down or giving up. You know, we we incarcerate 25 percent of the world's uh, incarcerated population, even though we make up only five percent of the world's population. And those numbers are aren't anything to be proud of, especially as a country, as resourceful as Americans. So uh, we're going to continue our work. You know, I think that those who have been supportive from both parties will continue to be supportive. And we're going to try to get more legislation passed to release more people. Um, hopefully, uh, President Obama continues to commute sentences as he's did uh, this past week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're just going to keep encouraging the White House and other people to work with us. And the, the lab has been instrumental in my work in terms of just um, helping me share why this is so important with a community that, you know, I had no idea about, you know, the tech community and, mm-hmm. you know, being able to connect with people, you know, in, in this modern way has been just really impactful. Yeah, I, lo- I love when uh, in some of your talks you talk about how before you went to prison, mobile phones were like huge and, and how, how different it is. I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, you talk about this a lot, but just the number of people who are going to be coming out of prison and how you didn't have access to books about computers when you were in prison and, and just how unprepared the people are. But also, I mean, even with you, I mean, even though, you know, you're a director's fellow, you've, you've got a lot of influential friends, um, it's still really hard to rent an apartment, get a job, and that, I mean, what do you think we can do about people coming out of prison right now? I mean, it's such, it's such, a, it's such a hard problem, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I, when I came home, there were things that I really didn't account for. You know, you, you go in prison and people say, okay, you serve your, you served your time, you repaid your debt to society, uh, go out there, find a job, you know, find somewhere to live, and just become a normal everyday person. And when I got out, it just wasn't that easy. Uh, to this day, I've never had a a regular um, job that I've you know that I've got through you know uh, the traditional path of putting in a resume, uh, having an interview, uh, and I put in countless resumes and, and, and applications when I came home, and they basically just got through in the dustbin. And like one of the hardest things for me was when I was trying to get an apartment um, shortly after we met, actually, and and mm-hmm. Like, it was so demoralizing to know that, you know, I had all these great references. I was doing incredible work and nobody would rent to me because I have a felony on my record. And that that really troubled me deeply. Um, and I, I knew that I had to speak about those things because, you know, having a place to live is like that's the foundational piece to building, you know, a normal life. And, and, and you know, I think every human being deserves to, you know, the opportunity to rent or lease and, and if they're capable to actually buy a home uh, and we're just making it very difficult for people and I think that's those are things that's very simple for us to fix because all we have to do is just say you know this person you know he can afford to live here she can afford to live here um, and let them prove themselves to be good tenants like anybody else it's funny because a lot of people who've heard you speak love some of your stories or somebody uh, Bo is asking if you could tell the story about your texting when you first got out of prison. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that was, that was you know, so prior to going to prison, and this is just to give some context, I went to prison in 1991, so 
I think that was the year the internet first like was be- beginning to become a thing. Uh, so we didn't have we didn't have text. We had pagers. And so when I got out of prison, um, you know, I, I got my first phone, which was a little BlackBerry. I, I really wanted something more advanced. I wanted a smartphone, but uh, everybody was like, just slow down. You haven't even used phone technology yet. <laughs> <laughs> but when I got my BlackBerry, people would, would text to me in these little coded languages that I didn't, you know, understand. And I just remember, you know, responding to one of my friends and he wrote K and I was just like, K, like, what what is K? And, you know, he was like, K as in OK. And I'm like, OK, so what's wrong with K? And he was like, no, K means OK. And I was like, F you. And uh, <laughs> and he was like, why are you like cussing me out? And I'm like, no, F you as in I finally understand. Uh, <laughs> so I just started making up my own little short uh, lingo because I thought that's what you did. I didn't know there was kind of like this standard uh, text lingo. I thought you just made it up. Uh, but, but yeah, it was just interesting learning about technology. But that's, I mean, sort of, that's what's kind of been incredible watching you as you came out. I mean, you were writing in prison, but you came out and you're, you know, on Facebook, you're on Twitter, you're sort of, uh, and then, and then I th- and I, there were a bunch of different things that happened, but to get your book uh, republished again, I mean, I, I think that was, I mean, just that, that, that journey was amazing. Um, I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about how, how that, that happened? Yeah, so um, I, re- I remember uh, this was around 2012 when I, when I began actually writing a book. Um, so I had, I had tinkered with the idea of writing a memoir while I was in prison, and I think I had wrote like a chapter, and then I was like, eh, you know, I want to stick to fiction. And then when I got out and I started doing, you know, talks at universities and schools, and they were always interested about the backstory, like, you know, how did you go from being this smart kid that ended up in prison and I had one of these, you know, what Oprah calls an aha moment, and I realized that um, people needed to know that story. They needed to know how kids get caught up in, you know, the judicial system, how they get caught up in these cycles of gun violence, which are prevalent in cities like Detroit, Chicago, and, and some boroughs in New York. And so I started writing a book, and, you know, because I had met with resistance in a lot of other spaces, I'm just a do-it-yourselfer type of person. And so I saved up money that I made and I self-published the book originally, um, which I asked you to write the intro to. And, and, and because I really wanted people to capture the full circle of me being out of prison. And so I, I published that book, uh, did a few talks. And at one talk, um, you know, we made the book available to everybody who was present. And one of the women happened to be one of Oprah's producers. Um, and she took the book to Oprah, and Oprah wouldn't read the book. <laughs> and <laughs> she tell the story, she said uh, she was intimidated by the cover because I was on there with my tattoo showing, mm-hmm. and you know it was kind of a, a grittier cover than the one that's out now. Um, but once that that happened, and you know Oprah, you know, reached out and said she wanted to interview me, I knew that at that point that I wouldn't be able to handle uh, the distribution of writing my wrongs. Um, you know, that was going to come after being interviewed by Oprah. Because, you know, once Oprah interviewed you, the world wants to know your story. And so I reached out to, you know, a mutual friend. Um, and she assigned me one of the best agents in the literary world. And she pitched the book to a few different um, publishing houses. And a Penguin Random House imprint called Convergent was like, we would love to publish this book. And so 
on March the 8th, um, 2016, we republished uh, Writing My Wrongs. And it was actually the, the, the 26 year anniversary of the day I had got shot. So hmm. it literally had came full circle because I debuted on the New York Times bestseller list um, 26 years later. Wow, that's that's amazing. And she and she really uh, I remember uh, when uh, when I saw Oprah, she was talking about how uh, uh, when she was interviewing you, um, I think she asked him, uh, you're talking about your story about uh, when uh, your mom, I think, threw a pot at you and uh, and uh, she was talking to you about your your mother and uh, uh, and she was sort of boasting about or well, boasting she, she was saying that, you know that she made you cry and then you made her cry and she was saying it was you know one of the best interviews she'd ever done and uh and that was uh also pretty Im impressive i mean i think that the the i don't know if you want to say anything about that story but uh yeah i mean i mean like the interview with oprah was supposed to have been like 45 minutes and we ended up talking for about three hours maybe three and a half hours um, you know, and I went in probably like anybody else who's about to get interviewed by, you know, the woman who to me is just, she embodies everything that's right about the world in terms of her spirit, uh, her influence on us and influence and impact on people. And so, I, you know, I was like, wow, this is really happening. It was like such a surreal experience. But once we started talking, it was just this real human connection. And, you know, we, we talked for hours, literally, and... You know, she definitely got me to cry. To cry. Uh, I don't know how you can do an interview with, with Oprah and not cry. But what I, what, I really, what I discovered through that interview is when you look at it on television, you know, it's shrunk down, it's edited down, and it seems like, you know, she's talking more than she actually is. But Oprah is one of the most incredible listeners. Um, and it's a spiritual feeling. It's not even like, you know, her just listening with her ears, but she's listening with her entire being. And that's what brings things out that you had never, like I had never even made a connection between why I wanted to be a doctor. Um, and in my past growing up, you know, with, with tough circumstances with my mother. Uh, and she brought those type of things out and it definitely led to a lot of tears. Uh, but it was such a relief to really understand the whys of how I came to be the man that I am today. Um, and, and the, the interesting thing is that when I left the interview with Oprah, I thought that would be, Hey, I did this interview with Oprah, uh, something that I'll be proud of for the rest of my life. And that would be the end of it. But actually our friendship has only grown over the years, uh, over the, over that time span. And so we're in frequent contact. Um, and but, you know, it's just incredible to have Oprah as a friend. But this is, this is like my favorite Instagram from her, um, yeah. where she's like she and all of her, her staff are reading your book and then yeah. and then she says <laughs> she's got like 10,000 likes and got everybody in my house reading your book I mean that's that's pretty incredible uh uh support yeah. um but uh but that I mean I think that you know so the the I mean it's it's amazing because I think through your TED talk through your book through Oprah you've been able to reach a lot of people and I think what was I think for me really important about the mass incarceration uh uh issue. I mean, everything from reading, you know, a new Jim Crow and, uh, and, and thinking about it from the foundation position, just as an individual, I think one of the hardest things was that it was really hard to, I think, politically imagine why it, the, the hardest part was thinking that how could you imagine criminals actually being 
real human beings that you could get behind as somebody that needed support. You could sort of logically get your head around the racism. You could get your head around. They were people. But I think you really helped put a face on how, uh, he, he, you know, it could have been me, could have been my son, um, and how you can also, this transformation that you made um, from, you know, and you talk about this really well in your book from the sort of violent, uh, uh, how would I call it, the, uh, you know, the result of the environment that you were in and turning around into this sort of um, leader that you are. But, you know, I, I, I also think it's really important how you uh, are, are working with your, uh, your community also to get other people on that path. I mean, has that been pretty successful? Because in your book, you talk about a lot of friends that you had in prison. I mean, are you a, are there a lot of you guys? <laughs> Yeah, you know, one one of the the things that the work that I'm doing with Beyond Prisons now is really about sharing the stories of the other men and women who I know who have come home and who are doing incredible work in the community. And sometimes it's it's not really, you know, it's not like the high level work or doing a TED talk or uh, being on Oprah. But these are men and women who are adding value to the community because they came out and they are very intentional about you know, what they bring to the table. You know, like when you look at inner cities like Detroit and Chicago, uh, the gun violence is at crisis level. You know, mm-hmm. in Detroit, you know, it's averaging a murder a day. In Chicago, it's averaging about two murders a day. Uh, and these are typically young black males uh, killing each other. And so, you know, to have men and women coming home who've lived through the consequences of that, uh, be able to share their story and work with these kids, hands-on mentoring programs, uh, it's been it's been great to be able to support that. But even beyond that, um, you know, just to know that there are men and women who are coming out here who are starting business, they're entrepreneurs, they're getting into the, their tech investors. Um, one of my friends, he's, I'm quite sure he's tuned in now, Brian McKinney. Uh, he was formerly incarcerated. He's he stays and he's in Silicon Valley a lot. Um, brilliant, brilliant young mind, and he's actually teaching young people how to code now. You know, here it was. This guy was in prison a few years ago. And so, you know, the idea is to really share these stories. And, and I mean, you, you know, Joy, you create, you help create a lot of the platforms that I stand on now um, in a very serendipitous way, you know, connecting me to the TED community through my first TEDx talk, uh, TEDx Midwest. And we both did a talk um, where you actually intro, introduced me at that talk. And so that being able to, to introduce me to, to spaces and people trusting that you knew who I was at the core and at my heart and that I wouldn't, you know, <laughs> come in and, and go crazy and scare people. Like, cause I mean, it, you know, coming out of prison after 20 years, people are nervous about that. You know, who is this person coming out after all these years, but you've been able to be a great, um, you, you've opened up a great pathway for me in a lot of ways by introducing me to those communities and, and, you know, being willing to engage me. And I've learned so much from you. So I'm deeply appreciative of, um, our relationship and the director's fellowship and my connection uh, to the MIT Media Lab. Well, uh, so it's likewise. Uh, really um, interested in all the stuff that you've you've helped us with. But now I think as we go forward, you know, you've, you're you're now putting together and continuing this movement. And uh, I think we've seen also that you know a lot of the technology. I mean, there's obviously the technology that you, we use for. Um, you know, gadgets and stuff and stuff like that. But there's also, I mean, the, the, the way that we use social media, the way that technology can be used to sort of engage and inform people. I mean, that was one of our projects that we did in Detroit. But I think, you know, even this election shows the, the impact uh, or kind of the disconnect between some of the traditional media 
and and the media that people are 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 listening to. So it'd be really interesting to you know think about and work with you on how uh, we might use technology to you know communicate and 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 and, and get people together. I, I know. I mean, is that is that something you're working on right now? Yeah, so currently uh, with Beyond Prisons, the, the way that we're structured is we have a couple of campaigns. Uh, the campaign will be launched in the early part of the next year. It's called I See You. And the idea is really to help people be very clear um, in how we just see each other. Like, I mean, our this election, you know, it, it, it shows some of our, you know, things that we haven't fixed in the country, you know, racism, classism, sexism, uh, you know, um, gender bias, uh, bias toward people's sexual orientation. And I realized through my own storytelling is that if people don't see you clearly, then it's easy for them to judge you unfairly. Um, and that happens a lot of time when you're formerly incarcerated. You know, you walk into a room and people hear that you're formerly incarcerated and you're immediately stamped with this level of, you know, lifetime criminal or thug or, you know, any other derogatory name until they actually get to know you. And so what I've realized is that narrative is such a powerful tool to turn the tide in terms of the conversation. And so we're going to be doing some virtual reality uh, pieces around those issues that we really, really care about. We really think are important to help people become empathetic and compassionate, look at the world through different people's eyes. Uh, we'll be telling other type of stories, you know, um, to help people really understand who we are as a country and who we are as a people. Yep, I, I think that's that's super important, and uh, you know it's interesting because I think a lot of people are are beating up um, Facebook for uh, you know all the the fake news stuff and stuff like that. But then you know some people use Facebook really well, and I think it's it's important to think about. I mean, I, I think a lot about the open web and how we can have alternate platforms, but we also need to figure out how to use the platforms that where people are um, well. And I, I think, you know, we're, it's funny because we're doing Facebook Live right now, so it's sort of a, a loop. But, um, but, that, uh, but I also want to sort of congratulate you on the, this, uh, this, the, the, the Facebook most recommended books list. Um, I think you made, I don't really get how the ranking on this works, but, um, but you, you, you got, I, I knew about it because I was one of the people who uh, got asked to do the recommendations, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool list. And, uh, uh, and you know, I think the fact that you're being shared by all these people on Facebook, um, you know, even though Facebook may have caused a lot of our problems, it also helps us amplify uh, stories that are important too. So you know, I think that you know, I, I think that the, the the and I I see I see you playing on Facebook Live a lot too. I mean, what have you learned? Do you, do you are you what do you? How's your engagement right now on Facebook and Twitter? And what are the tools that you you think are most effective for you and your crew? Yeah, I mean, I think I think when Facebook came with the live thing, it's one of the best things they could have done. Um, it's honestly because I'm a writer; it's one of my favorite platforms because it allows me to write at length, um, and it's allows me to engage people who actually activate it. Uh, I have a very strong following, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, there's people that I'm quite sure that have way more followers than I do, um, but the people who follow my page are people who actually do stuff. They really get engaged. You know, when we're doing community events, I put the call out, people show up. I mean, people from all walks of life, and it's been an incredible experience. Um, whenever there's, like, you know, deep, profound stuff that's impacting the country, 
Um, and I just I'll do a live, you know, talk on, on you know, just kind of conversational tone and people engage at a really high level. Um, they really connect it and we get a chance to learn from each other and grow from each other. So I think the platform is incredible. Uh, I love Twitter. I mean, I think what, what Twitter does for me is it's a great source of just like news in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it allows you to get out a lot of content. So, you know, it's interesting that, you know, I came home six years ago clueless about any of this stuff you know and now i'm kind of like people are reaching out to me like hey how do you increase your followers and how do you engage audiences um but it's a testament to my commitment like I'm, i've been very committed to learning and you know i think about conversations we've had around your dining room table when everybody was talking about coding and text and i'm like it was almost like listening to a foreign language but you know here it is years later um that i'm, I'm really learning a lot and mm-hmm. Uh, I want to share one of my favorite stories about the lab. I just thought about it when we did the prison hack. Uh, <laughs> because what, that was like such an incredible learning moment for me. Uh, but I think it was incredible for the students and the faculty who joined in. And, and basically, you know, I came up with these five design challenges based on how we survived in prison. And, you know, it wasn't until we were doing the um, IG in Detroit that I realized that innovation takes place everywhere mm-hmm. and you know that in order to get you know desired outcomes you have to iterate on these things and i was like wow this is what we did in prison except for in prison when you do it you get in more trouble so, <laughs> <laughs> you know so one of my favorite uh hacks was you know seeing if the students could could turn a tape player motor a big ink pen and a guitar string into a tattoo gun um, and, and we did that at the lab and, and they almost got close to doing it. I think about two more hours, uh, they would have figured it out. But what I thought about is that had they solved that, that problem, you know, we would have been like, wow, this is really genius, you know, but when it happens in prison, we don't think that these guys are actually engineers and designers. And if we really said, okay, you know, you may have violated the rules, but now we're going to put you in this class mm-hmm. to help you own that talent so that you can add value to society. I think it would just be a different outcome. And so I'm looking forward to doing that hack again in, 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 a, in a different way mm-hmm. uh, because I think people really need to see that to make that connection. Well, um, you know, Martha Minow just joined our advisory council for the Media oh, Lab. Yeah. And uh, oh, one, one of the things that we're talking a lot about is, you know, um, uh, the important thing about universities is that uh, uh, it's kind of a place where it's supposed to be safe to do uh, somewhat uh, – Otherwise, uh, I guess tr- troublesome or dangerous stuff. You know, I think that uh, uh, there's kind of a, a social rule about that. And and we did we did a we did a, a conference this summer called Forbidden Research, uh, where we had everything from research about geoengineering to uh, Edward Snowden's uh, cryptographic phone to uh, even researching uh, um, pedophilia. All things that are really hard to talk about, and the head of research at MIT was there, uh, Maria Zuber, who's a wonderful person, and and she said at the end, you know, that made me really uncomfortable, but I'm glad you're using the platform correctly, because if we couldn't do an academic conference about these topics at MIT, where else could we do it? You know, and, and I think one of the things really is, you know, and and to your point, I think if you do something in prison, you get labeled a troublemaker. You do that at uh, academic institution, you get labeled an innovator. And um, I think 
that what you know and as the environment gets harder and harder whether we're talking about stuff like climate change or or uh you know racial issues and things like that the university is actually an important place um to both have those conversations and to uh you know challenge uh authority and i think that uh you know we have this disobedience prize that we're going to uh, be giving out uh, Reed Hoffman's funding it for two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and uh, it's uh, I, you know I think it's a it's an important time to use uh, uh, academic institutions as a place to uh, have difficult conversations, and so hopefully you know and obviously not just conversations. I think we um, we really need to uh, think about how to um, you know provide and create tools for people who want to do things in society. Um, uh, were, you, were you were you there when at the at the meeting where John Lewis came? I don't think I was at you, that. One. I think that was the one before. Okay, yeah, he was. He he came to uh, to one of our retreats, and uh, you know, I think everybody was crying within like uh, um, you know, ten minutes of him talking because he was talking about how you know during the civil rights movement they would go to these basements of these churches and they would practice uh, and train for nonviolent action. So they would kick you and spit on you and call you names, and you had to be able to just uh withstand that and so then you know he would use it when he you know went out um and when people went out on 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 marches and protests and he was talking about the freedom ride where he you know he and another guy um, got basically beat up and left for dead in a pool of blood by some um clansmen and then he was telling us a story about how just a few years ago um he got a call and it was uh uh and the guy said i want to come see you brought his son and he said i was one of the clansmen who tried to kill you and will you forgive me you know and the little boy started to cry and they hugged and they all cried and he said of course i'll forgive you you know and for me you know he was saying that uh if it weren't for that nonviolence and that he that you wouldn't leave room for that humanity to come back out you know and and i think that a lot of I see a lot of students. I see a lot of my my friends getting really upset and kind of wanting to resort to violence. And when I talk about people like John Lewis or Gandhi, I mean this is part of our uh, disobedience prize. I want to try to uh, find people who are kind of doing it with you know real principles. Um, but a lot of my my students even tell me that you, that's all that's old stuff. That doesn't work anymore. You know uh, the the bad guys are more organized, and if you do nonviolent. Uh, you, you know, you get dismantled, but I don't. I don't believe it. You know, I, I I think that that through compassion and through nonviolent action, you should still be able to uh, take on the fights that we need to do. And that's another whole set of um, you know. We've got uh, Jamila at the Albert Einstein Institute who's working with Gene Sharp on nonviolent action, and we've got Tenzin, who's another director's fellow who works on uh, on um, uh, discipline, compassion, and we've got you, you know, and I think that having, uh, you know, leaders and, 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 and tr I think he really needs training, right? I mean, maybe I'm going to bring this back to you. I mean, it, it wasn't easy for you to sort of to say, I'm not going to, um, I'm, I, I don't do violence anymore. I mean, can you talk about that transformation a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, prison, prison is a very volatile environment. Uh, just to give some context, you know, the first prison I went to, it's called the Michigan Reformatory in Ionia, Michigan. Uh, it was also known as the Gladiator School because literally every day somebody was getting stabbed, bludgeoned, beat, uh, fights break out all the time. And it's a very testosterone-driven environment, very uh, power-driven you know, environment. And I was a product of that environment. I got into a lot of trouble. I got into a lot of 
you know, altercations that led to me being in solitary confinement uh, for a total of seven years. Um, I've committed a very serious violent acts in prison as part of um, survival and, and, and being able to be in that environment. And for me, it was realizing that there were choices, that we had choices, and that you can live with dignity, you can live with, live with pride, and that you can earn respect by respecting yourself as a human being and by being compassionate and empathetic toward other people. And it was, it was, it was hard, you know, it was, it was really hard because I didn't know how other people would react or respond to me choosing a different pathway. Mm -hmm. um, but because I believe so much in the principles that I had learned and developed through reading, uh, meditation, uh, through really deepening my understanding of what it means to be human, you know, I was confident that I would walk that path and whatever came with that, I was willing to endure. And fortunately, uh, when I started walking that path and inspired other men who had lived a violent existence to walk the path as well, because the reality is none of us really wanted to be in that cycle in the first place. We just didn't know how to get out of it in a way uh, that allowed us to be dignified and be respected and not have to be fearful of somebody else taking advantage of us mm -hmm. opting, you know, choose that path. And so the courage that it takes is something that I found uh, the men in that environment really respected is that, you know, I'm not doing this because I'm afraid of getting in more trouble. I'm doing it because it's the dignified human thing to do. And I think that those same principles apply out here. You know, I've been able to engage audiences who walked in with, you know, judgments and, and had their own views of who they think I would be and what they thought I was. And they walk out with a very different life view. You know, uh, they walk out more capacity, more empathetic. Uh, I've spoken in front of people who work for the Department of Corrections and saw the, the shift in their thinking when they were able to connect with my humanity. And I just feel like that's a much more powerful tool. Um, you know, violence provides an immediate gratification, but it doesn't provide long-term solutions. Mm -hmm. And we see that all the time. I mean, historically, uh, with the nonviolence movement, you know, people were very critical of that. You know, how could you sit up and let somebody spit on you and beat you and punch you and not react. And, and what a lot of people didn't know is that story that John Lewis told is that mm -hmm. they had to train for that because the natural inclination is when you're hit is to defend yourself. That's mm -hmm. anybody, the most passive person, um, they have to train themselves to not react. And what I found is that when you can tap into your humanity, it makes it easier for you to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. And one of the, one of my personal practice is anytime that I'm in a uh, uh, conflict or, you know, uh, a space of discomfort is I try to see the child and the person that I'm dealing with. Because mm. most of the time, that's what's really acting out is something that's deeply rooted in that person's childhood is emerging, you know, in, in them as an adult. And when you can recognize the child in another person, you know, because, I mean, like most of us like children, <laughs> like I don't mm -hmm. know many people who don't see children and, and re respond to the needs of a child. When you can see that in an adult, it really helps you be empathetic and compassionate and know that they're working through something that has nothing to do with you. And it's the same, like when you think about somebody who's racist um, or bigoted or whatever, you know, or gender biased, typically with their, it's their childhood that's emerging as, in, in their adulthood. And when you can recognize that, then it, it doesn't anger you as much. Like when I hear somebody say something racist, I'm not even angered because I'm like, this is just a big adult having a temper tantrum. Mm -hmm. um, and it comes out of fear. You know, they're afraid. They're afraid of. They're afraid of the unknown. They're afraid of, you know, the discomfort that it takes to get to know somebody. 
And once you get past that, then you recognize this is just a broken human being that needs love and compassion and empathy. And mm. we can provide that, you know, so um, I'm just I'm, I'm very optimistic. I think that people will rise to the occasion and that, you know, sometimes it takes us to be, you know, shaken up a little bit and, and to get out of our comfort zone. But I think that's when the, when the growth really happens. That's a really good story, I think, to end on, Shaka. Um, so thank you for spending uh, time with me on uh, New Year's Eve and uh, uh, say hi to the family. And uh, maybe I'll, I'll see you on uh, Facebook Live with uh, Sekou later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, one, one of the things, I guess, before we hop off uh, is I'm excited about your book. I, 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 you know, the principles that I've learned from you, you know, just the, the way that you approach one of my favorite is, is, is learn over education. I just think that's, I use it all the time. I'm always stealing jewels from your talks uh, now, but it's one of the things that I use. Um, and then the idea that, that it's not failure if you're learning something. Like those two things are just phenomenal. Uh, I can't wait for the world to get a hold of your book. Uh, how does it feel like just, you know, uh, <laughs> part of your life where I'm, I'm turning the tables now. Like how does, how does that feel like just to know that this book is like you can't even it's sold out like the first day so um, yeah I, I can't tell if it got sold out because they weren't expecting to sell very many <laughs> but, um, but uh, no it's 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 funny I mean I think you know I was the the main thing about the book is I learned a lot uh, working on the book with uh, Jeff Howe and uh, a researcher Chia because I had you know when you're talking you say oh yeah I, I heard somewhere that that there's some statistic and and they we, we had to track everything down and and I stopped saying certain things because they turned out not to be true. <laughs> and some things now I talk about, but they're, uh, I know where they come from. And then, and also, you know, with Jeff as a professional journalist, we were able to sort of put the stories together in an interesting way so they're easier to read. So I think it's a more accessible book than maybe some of my, my talks have been. So that's been interesting. But the biggest thing is that, you know, I, I'm not really like a book person because I think of them as sort of last media, but, um, but it's, there's a thing about, like a book. I mean, people, it's, it becomes a big deal. It's like a big event. Um, and so it's, it's cool having a lot of people reading the book and, and, and talking to me about it. I think the only negative thing is that we did, it took us about four years to write the book. So a lot of the stuff in the book is stuff that I was thinking about a while ago. And there's a bunch of stuff that's not in the book that I'm excited about. So, um, so I either have to write another book or, uh, have to figure out how to do that. No, but it's, it's, it's been really great. And, uh, and, and, and thank you for, reading my book shock i'm uh i'm uh, i hope that maybe you know i think the conversation we had today is a little bit of a how our two books overlap so uh yeah, so people who haven't read shaka's book or my book you should read it over the holidays <laughs> yeah definitely definitely you know I'm, I'm really excited for you and just happy to see you on this journey this path and i'm looking forward to the next book i know it's so many jewels i mean i get access to it you know but like I say, you, you've awakened my mind in a very different way, and I'm just deeply appreciative of that. And now the world has access to that through your, through your words. Thank you. And you, 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 were, you were a lot of my inspiration to get the thing out because I just saw how, how much your book was changing people's lives. So, uh, so thank you. Oh, thank you. All right. So, see you later. All right. Okay. So, all right. See you later. Cheers. Peace, man.